Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Thank you so much for joining us on this Sunday evening in April 2022. Hopefully, we're going to get rid of winter. And we have with us in the studio tonight, Kathy Lux. Kathy, thank you for being here. Good evening, Nick. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm happy to be anywhere with everything going on. So, Boy, that's the uh, truth. The... What we want to talk about the first two segments is talk about just what's been going on. A lot has been going on in the last uh, several weeks around here, seeing what's what's happening here in uh, Cleveland, northern Ohio, and in the United States. Truly has. The, the first, first thing that's up that's been in the news uh, since the Academy Awards was a thing between uh, Will Smith and uh, Chris Rock. What, what do you think of that? So, I, I, you know, I didn't watch the Academy Awards. I haven't... In- Many, many, many years. Um, but, of course, it made the news and certainly has gotten a great deal of attention. Um, and so your immediate reaction, mine was, uh, it, it, at first, it seemed somewhat scripted when I saw the replay of it. Uh, and I wondered, is this an attempt at getting more attention to the Academy Awards and getting back those ratings and, you know, get, getting somewhere? Um but then as this has played out, I'm not so sure that that was the case. Well, well the, the question also that I'm hearing, if we switch over to the conspiratorial part mm-hmm. of the world, uh, thinking that uh, this whole thing, if it was staged, there's a conspiracy theory out there that it was meant to be a diversion from the media covering the Ukrainian-Russian war that's going on. And the question is, if, if that is true, which we'll never know, or if we do, we have to know and be careful where we're getting our sources of information from. But the question would be, who's staging it for what purpose and whose side are they on? Not only that, but if if that were true, who who thinks that the American people, that the public, could be diverted by something like that away from this horror that is happening in Ukraine? That something so, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, the the Will Smith Chris Rock thing is, is really kind of small scale. It's very small. It's, I mean, it's sort it's, of a blip on the map, if so, anything. Right. So, do we really think that the American people's mentality is such that that's all it would take to get their attention away from Ukraine? Well, wow. if we, well, if we just talk about the number of uh, news segments that have been dedicated to. Uh, Chris Rock and Will Smith, uh, the, the numbers spiked up and uh, became the number one story in many news reports. So, uh, but, but how do we get away from the reality of what's going on with uh, the Ukraine? Uh, and, and the Russian-Ukraine situation is something we're watching every day because it still has an incredible potential for expanding into a global conflict, bringing more and more countries into the conflict. And uh, trying to keep it where it is or hoping it stays between Ukraine and Russia is a big hope, I think. Yes, and 
I don't know how much help our president is giving to prevent that from happening with some of the speech uh, that that has been coming from him in the past week. Um, that you call them gaffes, if you will, and then the White House is backing off of them and, and trying to take us. Uh, well, no, that's not what he meant, you know, such as such as Putin. You know, Putin needs to be removed. Well. Are you, are you calling for a regime change? No, he's not calling for a regime change. That's not what he meant. Well, those were his words. Um, there, there are uh, inflammatory statements coming from him at the wrong times that really, I think, should be of great concern to yeah, everyone. Well, now, now we still hear, though, that Trump is making overtures to Putin for information on Hunter Biden. I don't know if you heard those stories that are circulating around. I, I haven't heard them with regard to Trump, but I have been hearing a lot of details coming out in the news media about this whole Hunter Biden thing and, and Hunter's connection with Russia, with Ukraine, with China. Mm-hmm. And now um, there is validation being given to the laptop and the evidence and Suddenly, the New York Times the is New York Times, admitting you know, that yes, this know. really is true, and and which causes me, and I'm sure a lot of people, but my question is, why are they finally admitting it now? Because they knew, they knew uh, before the presidential election, the New York Times, that it was true, and and there was a deliberate cover up, and now suddenly these media outlets are saying, well, yes, apparently this, you know. This is real evidence. What what brought that change? And and what does Hunter Biden's connections and therefore certainly his father, our mm-hmm. president's connections or involvement, um, what is the impact? What does that have to do with the conflicts going on right now with these countries, with Ukraine, with Russia, with China? Well, let me tell you <laughs> what, what, what it has to do with it. I mean... Uh, the United States is uh, actually performing on the international stage with regard to the Ukraine situation. And you know, part of that performance is performing as the quote-unquote post-World War II leader of the free world and the democratic uh, nations of the world. And the question, are we the leader uh, or not with regard to what the United States is standing for and what they're doing? when we have so much uh, disruption within this country itself and we can't uh, agree on many things in this country, that plays into, say, the, the Russian propaganda that the United States uh, is, is really not up to what they're supposed to be and that there is a problem with uh, some of the allegations now the Russians are made. We hear a lot of things about the Russians. The, the, the Russian propaganda machine uh, has now convinced, from what we hear, reports that most of the Russian people are in favor of the Russian forces being in Ukraine. And uh, they are basically accepting the allegations that the United States is involved with Ukraine, with the neo-Nazis, with biochemical weapons uh, factories in Ukraine that's being sponsored and paid for by the United States. And uh, this, uh, which we're being told is misinformation, the misinformation coming out uh, is is being believed when people in this country don't support the current uh, 
regime that's controlling this country. That's uh, President Biden. So the question is, you know, how do we sh- how do we get together like in other wars and put on a unified front to the world that the United States has at least one unified policy as far as how do we view the world? And of course, there are thirty some countries in NATO looking at what we're we're doing, and they're depending on us as well. So how do we get out of that? How do we move forward? And so, and and I mean, it's my belief, and I'd like to know yours, but it it appears to me that, uh, regardless of political affiliation, right now, um, the majority is in favor of helping Ukraine in any way that we can. Mm-hmm. Um, the the division that I would say may exist is whether we actually physically participate boots on the ground um, in helping Ukraine. I think that is uh, contentious. There are some that believe we should and some that believe we shouldn't. But I think there is unity in believing we should do what we can to help Ukraine. Would you agree? Yes, I I agree. And uh, we have a couple of minutes before we have to take a break, but we'll we'll definitely come back to this because it's a big question. And we do have a call. By the way, if anyone wants to uh, email us a question tonight, do it at the Advocate Radio at gmail.com, theadvocateradio at gmail.com, and we'll put it up on our screen and answer the question. Because I have a question from a listener. Great. It says, uh, what should NATO do about the current conflict? Well, I have to remind everyone that, first off, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization is just that. It's an organization where members are part of a treaty, which makes it the law in their country. And the law of NATO says that it's a mutual self-defense agreement where an attack on any one of the member countries is an attack on everyone. What that does, it essentially commits all of the countries to go to war if there's an act of war committed against any one of the NATO countries. So that, that is sort of the problem because the United States should do something, but the question is what? Well, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. We have Kathy Lux in the studio tonight, and we're talking about the uh, the news items of the week. And uh, we'll be back after these words, so don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate with me and Kathy Lux in the studio tonight. Kathy, again, as always, great having you. And it's great to be here, Nick. It's good having somebody else to talk to in the studio. I enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good to get another point of view, and we can sort of fill in with each other here as far as what what all is going on. Um, During the last segment, we were talking about the the war going on in uh, Ukraine with Russia and what should the United States be doing, uh, assuming and knowing that the United States is part of NATO and is sort of a de facto leader in NATO, and that if NATO becomes involved in a war with Russia, it's likely to expand rapidly, extensively, and could be called World War III. So the United States is treading very lightly with regard to not tripping that wire that would start NATO people fighting Russians, because that if if Latvia or somebody or uh, Poland gets involved in a war with Russia, we're involved. We're at war with Russia. Right, right. 
So that that is just too much military might, too much military activity going on. So uh, so what happens is what's been happening so far, and that is getting supplies of, of weapons. Apparently, the the weapons that are most useful uh, to the Ukrainians uh, at this point are the handheld missiles, the javelins, and the Stinger missiles to get tanks and aircraft. Uh, and uh, they're they're coming across the border from the NATO countries into Ukraine, and uh, the Russians are moving their troops and repositioning right now for another strategy change. But um, they're still at the bargaining table in Turkey, and we hope that some good news comes out of that because the the carnage with the uh, innocent civilians always a problem in war. It, it, yes, and and it's being. Uh, called by many as a, as a genocide um, in terms of what Russia is doing to innocent people in Ukraine, um, which are, are war crimes. The, those are war crimes. And you're hearing talk now from those uh, on Capitol Hill that mm-hmm. there will be uh, accountability when this, when all is said and done. There will be accountability on the part, you know, against Putin for his war crimes, and I, I wonder what, what that looks like, what, what shape that takes, what, what would that be, exactly? But in terms of what can NATO, you know, what can they do, or what should they do? I, I think that we've, I think we've stepped up, but I think we needed to step up sooner. In terms of supplies uh, that the Ukraine needs, we we haven't done the best job in getting them what they need quickly, and it does appear that that is improving. But that certainly is a big big item um, because they those people certainly have the will to fight. They need to be equipped to fight and defend their country. Well, you speak about the will of the Ukrainian people. Yes, it it has been. Uh uh, I don't want to say miraculous, as, as well as a, a surprising response of, of willpower and resistance. Yes. And uh, basically going back to some, some basics about warfare, that it's one thing to be a conscripted 19-year-old in the Russian army going into a country where the people look just like your homeland people. Uh, and uh, people who are defending their families, their home, their country, uh, there's a lot uh, different motivations depending on those two armed forces that are confronting each other, and we're seeing that. So, uh, in a um, in a, a surprising result, that this war of the Russians going into Ukraine that should have taken days, I think, is what the Russians were expecting. We're now over a month into it, and the Russians are being pushed back, and there's a lot of uh, damage and uh, death and casualties the Russians are taking. So, so things haven't turned out the way the Russians have thought, and uh, the Ukrainians are still fighting because the Russians still outnumber the Ukrainians by, by many fold. So, uh, you know, about the only thing that NATO can do is to continue to get supplies over, not to mention the humanitarian aid. We have cities that are still uh, under siege right now where people need food every day, three meals a day, lucky if they can get one, 
Uh, lucky if they can get any. Lucky if they can get food, let alone call it a meal. Water. Water. Electricity. What about sanit- medicine? Sanitary issues. Yes. Clothing, baths, water for for cleaning, mm-hmm. uh, medicine. Uh, the reports of hospitals being destroyed, um, apartments and buildings where people live being destroyed. I don't know if the Russians. Let's just say hypothetically, the, the Russians won this this war. What are they left with? Uh, trillions of dollars worth of destroyed urban area that needs to be re- replaced. But in the meantime, this is affecting... Well, go ahead, Kathy. You are going to say... Well, that. I was just going to say, but a great deal of natural minerals and, um, you know, Ukraine is mm-hmm. rich with um, gas, oil, all sorts of natural resources. Which they can't give up, or they shouldn't right. give up. I mean, right. that's our country. Well, uh, this all translates into an effect on the U.S. economy. We, we see that immediately with gas prices that have been going up. Uh, the uh, United States is uh, re- releasing more of its stockpile of oil. It should bring the price of gasoline down. I heard estimates of around 30 cents a gallon yeah. for about a six-month period. Uh, but uh, the idea of how the overall U.S. economy is doing, we're still coming out of the pandemic. You know, there, there's something very similar to this bit of history that we're living in now to what happened in the 1930s and early 1940s. In the late 30s, early 40s, Europe was going to war, coming out of the Great Depression. We're talking about something that sounds amazingly similar. Europe going to war as the rest of us are coming out of the Great Pandemic, where people have been locked down and the economy has been stalled. And we're trying to get back... I was talking to someone uh, earlier today about the fact that uh, 2019, remember 2019? It's more more than two years Very ago. Very long time ago long, now, and no, it seems. <laughs> that was the last year that we were carefree and happy. We were an energy independent. And oh, we were everything. We were energy we, we, independent. We were energy independent. The, the economy was on an upward swing, and yeah. uh, the, the biggest things we had to worry about was uh, what was our schedule going to be like next week? Mm-hmm. Where are we going for vacation this summer? The good old days. But those were the good old days. They because, were. Because uh, there's so many psychological effects we're suffering. Just in the pandemic time frame, all the, right. we were faced with death every day, death numbers. Yes. And back then all we had were nasty tweets to suffer through. Oh my goodness! Well, we had. <laughs> well, we were living under the world of disinformation, and yeah. like like right now, we can talk about COVID a little bit in in our remaining time. How uh, the numbers have really gone down in COVID. Uh, people are coming out. We're seeing the disappearance of mandatory mask wearing. Uh, the issues with regard to what's on the horizon with COVID. We're seeing a new variant uh, called the the. BA2 variant, which is supposedly more infectious, but not as severe. Not as virulent. Right. And so, is which is typical of viruses, as they mutate, they generally do become less and less um, severe and less and less virulent, just speaking in generalities. Um, so at some point, I'm thinking we, we can go back to just calling it a cold, maybe. I'm hopeful. That's uh, what I'm hoping for. As I, well, I, I recall I just heard from somebody a couple of weeks ago who was fully vaccinated. They got the COVID, probably either the uh, Omicron or the BA2. 
they had been fully vaccinated, fully vaccinated, and also um, they they picked up COVID, and they developed uh, a blood clots in their lungs and a pulmonary embolus, mm-hmm. and uh, had a very difficult time. Had to go to the hospital and recover from that. So, COVID, if you get it, there's still a risk involved in it. It's still a little bit of Russian roulette. Mm-hmm. Uh, the statistics are in your favor that you're not going to get a severe case of it. Another friend of mine tested positive, didn't even know he had it. Right. No symptoms. So we never know. It, one size does not fit all. No, it doesn't. Not, but with, the, not with the virus, not with the vaccines. Um, and, and, you know, we have a history of flu and colds impacting people differently throughout the years and complications from those uh, you know, all along. Well, the what's going to happen in the future with regard to COVID and the second booster shot that's being recommended now, at least for people over 60, 65, uh, is something that we should all uh, consider, I suppose. I, I heard one doctor explain that because there is a, a graph and a chart of how long a booster will last, uh, and the BA2 is not really spreading that rapidly in this country yet, although it's pretty big in Europe and Asia, that maybe we want to wait for a bit until the BA2 gets closer to this country than get your booster, if you're, if you're going to get a booster. Uh, before we, we wrap up our segments, I just want to comment about the Ohio primary election. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody, find out who your candidates are. Find out what district you're in because the election is going to be on May 3rd. And at the present time, it looks like the uh, Senate uh, candidates of the Ohio Senate and the Ohio House, um, those boundaries haven't been finalized yet. So keep your eyes open. So anyway, we're going to take a short break again. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. You're listening to Nick Phillips here and Kathy Lux with me on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking about the congressional race in Ohio's 7th District. And with us tonight is Jonah Schultz. Jonah, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, Nick. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jonah Schultz, 7th District uh, for the United States Congress. Um, there's been a lot of discussion concerning the districting maps and so on. And, um, how, how has it gone with you since we started? Has it always been the 7th District, or do you start out, start out in another district, or what did you have to go through to get to this point? Well, when I launched my campaign, it was initially a primary to Anthony Gonzalez in the 16th District. Uh, we all know Gonzalez from the impeachment vote, uh, his amnesty support, his lockdown support. I was the first candidate to come out and primary him all the way back in February of last year. Uh, and so we knew we were moving from 16 to 15 congressional districts here in Ohio just because our population uh, hadn't grown to the national average. 
Uh, so we knew there was going to be changes to some extent, but we weren't quite aware to what extent this process would be going and how long it would be dragged out. So here we are, uh, less than, going on four weeks to Election Day, and we are in Ohio's 7th District. So uh, this is going to be the map, barring anything completely unforeseen. Uh, the Ohio Supreme Court is letting this map stand for at least 2022, this primary election and the general election. Uh, so Ohio's 7th District now is 100% of Wayne County, 100% of Medina County, uh, the northwestern corner of Holmes County, and then the southern and western uh, suburbs of Cuyahoga County. So it is a pretty broad, pretty diverse district when you're talking about inner ring suburbs like Brooklyn and Parma, uh, all the way down to areas in, in Worcester and Oroville and very rural areas in Wayne County and Holmes County. Uh, so, But what I've seen from the very beginning in all these different areas is that Republicans on the ground, your everyday working class, average everyday folks, are more united and more are more the same wavelength than ever before because we have seen what has gone on in this country. We have seen our most basic rights taken away from us, and we are seeing the disasters of the Biden administration, the economy tanking, our energy collapsing, uh, and chaos around the globe. So uh, the new 7th District, uh, I've, I've been campaigning in these counties the entire time since February 3rd of uh, 2021, uh, so we really like where we stand right now. For people who haven't heard from you before and are hearing you for the first time, tell us a little about your background and, and uh, what's your political experience and, and why you decided to run for Congress. Sure. So usually the first question I'm asked is, how old are you? Because I'm very much on the young end of the spectrum for politics, uh, especially considering the average age in Congress is around 70 years old. Um, I'm 27 years old. Um, I've spent my career in, in sales and marketing roles. I've I've been a member on my Republican Central Committee in Cuyahoga County for the last three years, and I've for years worked with candidates, whether working on campaigns or policy advising. Uh, and when I first got into politics, I knew something needed to be done after the Brett Kavanaugh hearings when I saw how the left viciously attacked somebody who had about as clean of a record as, as any one of us. Uh, and I realized that the left the Democrat Party at large would do this to any person that stood in their way and was a threat to them. So you see how they attacked Brett Kavanaugh viciously without evidence. You see how they attacked Donald Trump. You see how they really crucify any prominent conservative in the media. Uh, and they're just placeholders for any one of us. So I realize we either stand up or it's coming to our front door, whether we like it or not. So we better step up right now while we still have a chance to win. Um, so I've been involved in politics. I, I, I run uh, and have founded two nonprofit organizations, uh, one called Diamonds in the Rough that renovates rundown baseball fields in underprivileged communities, another called the Alliance of Indivisible Americans, which is centered around bringing people together from different aspects of life, different walks of life, uh, different political leanings, and bringing people together in public service. Because what I've seen is, whether it's planting urban gardens or the donation drives that we have done, is that when you bring people together in service, all of those other kind of lines that are drawn melt away when you're seeking to serve others and benefit the lives of others. So I've always been called to, to, to find a way I can use my own God-given gifts, abilities, and means to be able to help others, and that's really what's drawn me into politics, you know, as a Christian, to be able to serve those in my community that have for so long not had a voice in our politics because we continue to forfeit 
our political power to a few, really a few wealthy elite that control every aspect of our lives. I'm a firm believer, and, and a huge reason I jumped into this race is, is that we need citizen candidates. We need these working class outsiders. We need a more blue collar mentality in Congress. And that's what I bring to the table. So, you know, service has always been at the center of, of what I've wanted to accomplish and what I've wanted to give in my life, in my career, uh, in whatever my legacy will be when I depart this earth. And that's what ultimately led me into politics and into this race. Is this your first campaign or have you been involved in other campaigns? I was involved in one other campaign as a candidate uh, right on the bordering district of District 7 in the 11th district, which is a deep blue district. Mm -hmm. uh, this campaign I launched when I was very young and uh, and ultimately uh, came just 500 vote, votes short of winning that Republican primary. But uh, really working with individuals, getting to know Republicans, independents, and and many, many Democrats who live in that district who are so upset with the current system, it really opened my eyes. And that's, again, a, a huge springboard into this race where we can really make an impact and have an opportunity to send a true constitutionalist to Congress. Uh, so that first race for me was really eye-opening into pulling that back that veil of politics and seeing so much of what goes on uh, just on the surface of the inside of, of that arena. You mentioned uh, to me earlier about uh, individual liberties and government overreach. Uh, what did you have in mind when you mentioned that? Well, this was a huge factor, again, what brought me into this race, because we have seen the radical leftists and establishment Republicans join together to strip us of our most basic rights. We saw here in Ohio where the governor, where our government entities, without any kind of due process, any kind of consent, any kind of legislation, were able to strip away our most basic rights, were able to shut down private businesses, were able to shut down churches, were able to mass children, were able to make medical decisions for individuals without their consent, were able to tell people that they could not leave their homes. Now, any government that has the capability of doing that is already on a dangerous path. And, and what I've said in this whole process is, We've opened this Pandora's box now where as soon as we let these rights be taken from us by the government on a whim, regardless of what the situation is, without any kind of process, we mm -hmm. now have permissions we don't have rights. So a huge center of my campaign has been ending these mandates, ending these lockdowns, not just what has gone on in the past and what's going on now, but into the future. I, I firmly believe and I will sponsor legislation that prohibits any government entity from shutting down private businesses, churches, and private schools. There's no government that should have the ability to go in and do these things. And on that same wavelength, medical freedom has become a core of my campaign because I've said from the beginning that I don't care what you decide to do medically. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what to do medically. That's not my position. That's not within my authority to tell you what to do. All I want is for you to have the choice. All I want for you is to make the best prudential decision for yourself. So I'm a firm believer that we need medical freedom legislation that stops any public or private entity from mandating these vaccines, especially the ones right now that are in fair, experimental in nature. We just We just can't know what law, certain long-term side effects there may be or, or may not be. Um, and so we need to put the power 
in the hands of the individual and parents and families. And it gets down to what is the purpose of government, especially the federal government. My belief, and I believe the foundation of this country, is that the sole purpose of the federal government is to defend the rights of the individual. It is not to run our lives. It is not to defend corporations. It is to defend the rights of individuals and of families. And the federal government does just about everything except that these days. So individual liberty, whatever issue we're talking about, is really at the core of what I believe. Well, it sounds like some very basic and fundamental constitutional rights you're talking about. How's that playing out in the field? And we have a little less than a minute now, and we'll be taking a break. Uh, and why don't we hold up now, and we'll take that break. We'll come back. We're talking to 7th Congressional District candidate Jonah Schultz, uh, candidate for the Republican nomination, will be on the ballot in May uh, for the May primary. So uh, it's very important that we have Jonah talk to us and let us know what his thoughts are and, and why he's the best candidate. I'll be back after these words to talk to Jonah and find out why he's the best candidate for the 7th District. So don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. Thank you so much for joining us this Sunday evening. Uh, we're talking to Jonah Schultz, a candidate for the 7th U.S. Congressional District here in Ohio. And, Jonah, thank you so very much for joining and sharing with us tonight. Absolutely. I just appreciate any opportunity I get to, to speak directly to the people. That's what this is all about. We have to, as people trying to become public servants, that's our, that's our job. <laughs> and so I appreciate the opportunity. It is, and that's why we're so pleased to make the opportunity available because everything should be transparent. People should be able to hear what everyone who's running has to say, know what their choices are all about. Um, and there certainly is a choice as to who's going to be elected or the Republican candidate in the 7th Congressional District. And uh, I'd like to ask all the, the candidates out there when they come on is, uh, Jonah, why are you the best candidate for the 7th District? Well, from the very beginning of this campaign, what I've intended to do is make this about action over words, because what we've seen, all of us, regardless of how old we are, our entire lifetimes, is we've seen lots of broken promises, we've seen lots of empty words, empty slogans, and I think we're done with that. I think we've seen through that, and enough is enough, and we have to see who's willing to fight right now. And so what I've said from the, from the for a long time when we've been fighting these lockdowns and these mandates and the things that have been taken away from us is if you're not going to fight right now, you're not going to fight once you're elected because most people, if they're not working right now, they're not going to have incentive once you give them your vote and they're in office and they have all of that pressure already on them in the D.C. swamp. So the huge differentiator in this campaign has been the work ethic and what we've done on the front lines. I've stood shoulder to shoulder with workers, with doctors, with nurses, teachers, tradesmen, workers of all stripes and all backgrounds fighting these unconstitutional mandates, whether it's at these protests down at Smuckers in Orville, BWXT in Barberton, at UH Cleveland Clinic, standing with these workers, I've pushed for House Bill 248 in, in every way I possibly can through organizing efforts to get our legislators in the state of Ohio on board. For those of you not familiar, House Bill 248 would ban vaccine mandates and passports here in the state of Ohio. Uh, I've helped collect signatures for the ballot 
initiative for House Bill 248 so that the people can vote for our own medical freedom and, and decide what to do for ourselves. And so I've been on the front lines, on the front of all of these issues fighting. And, and I think ultimately what we've seen is a lot of empty words, but also we continue to elect individuals who have no idea what it means to live and work in our communities. We kind of have this country club running our politics right now. We have a lot of individuals elected who are pushed by the same donors who come from the same families, and then we get the exact same results. We have to reject that carousel that we constantly get on, and we have to start electing people who, like myself, know what it means to live in debt and pay the rent and find ways to get by, face the problems that average everyday people face, because what we have in Congress right now is a bunch of people who don't care or understand the problems that we face. We're seeing that play out all around the country and in our government under the Democrats and many of these establishment Republicans. So my perspective on all of these things is, is, is really not matched in this campaign. So between the work we put in, over 40,000 doors knocked. I personally attended over 300 events. We've been out in the community. We've talked to tens of thousands of voters. I put everything on the line to be able to win this race because I believe this is the moment, this primary has to be the moment when we start turning this country around because if we don't get this primary right, the November general is not going to matter. We can't continue to empower the same wealthy elitists that we can continue to empower. We need citizen candidates. We need constitutional conservatives, and that's why I'm running. We talk about workers and working. Uh, switching gears just a little bit over to immigration, it's been a major problem, and it's projected at the current rate to continue to be a major problem at our southern border with hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants coming over. Uh, if you're elected to Congress, or should I say when you're elected to Congress, what do you think you can do and what would you be targeting? Well, we first have to understand why illegal immigration and and Excess legal immigration is so damaging to a society. It dilutes, certainly, your culture. You can't have a cohesive language. You can't have a cohesive society and values. That That is very damaging. But what it does economically is it drags down workers' wages. It, it, it removes our jobs from American citizens who have been working here for decades, who are born here, who we have our first obligation to. That's why this is so often under this America First platform. But how do we secure our border? We have, uh, since Joe Biden took office, we're approaching or have surpassed 3 million illegal aliens coming across the border. In any other time in history, that would be called an invasion, not immigration. So what do we need to do to address this? We need a multi-pronged approach. Build the wall is step one. That's just common sense, but that's not going to do it on its own. On top of building the wall, we need to increase ICE presence and our technological barriers. We need to use every resource at our disposable. We need E-Verify, mandatory E-Verify for our businesses to hold businesses accountable because we know thousands of businesses are taking advantage of this cheap labor coming across the southern border. They need to be held accountable for taking advantage of this. And ultimately, mm -hmm. to right. turn off faucet, we need to end this massive welfare state that we're currently living under. Because if you get across this border, you get into the United States, you, as a legal immigrant, you can get free housing, free health care free education. You can do all of these things off of American citizens' money. This is a, a, a horrendous system. It is giving incentive to individuals to break our laws and to stay here. Ultimately, we need this holistic approach if we are ever going 
to solve this issue. But we also need to address legal immigration as well. We we are seeing, a, you know, the largest migration of people in human history coming into the United States. So we need to end this visa lottery program. We need to end chain migration. And we need to drastically reduce legal immigration as well. Now, a lot of Republicans will say that. And it's not to say that these, you know, many of these legal immigrants are, are not good people. Many of them are. But we need to go to a merit-based system. And we need to reduce We can't be accepting millions and millions of immigrants into this country if we expect to have a cohesive culture and we expect to maintain our wages and maintain a quality of life for American citizens. Ultimately, we need to shift our focus on how do we prioritize American citizens and put them first. It's, it's really that simple. Changing gears yet again, uh, it's been uh, observed that there's a lot of corruption in Congress. Well, what kind of corruption do you see out there that you would like to attack? Well, that that would that could be a whole hour segment in itself to address all of the corruption. <laughs> I'll give you about Congress. five minutes. Go ahead. Yeah, we we know we know the insider trading that's going on. We see Nancy Pelosi, one of the most prolific stock traders apparently in history, with the success that she's had. We know there's insider trading going on. There needs to be a ban on elected officials trading these stocks and their and their direct families. They need to be held in you know, separately held mutual funds, things of that nature, where they can't have direct control based on their insider knowledge. But to really address corruption in Congress, we, again, need a holistic approach. The one thing that is talked about and is agreed upon by the by the vast, vast majority of voters, both Republican and Democrat, are term limits. So we have people in Ohio like Marcy Kaptur who have been in Congress nearly twice as long as I've been on this earth. That's certainly not acceptable. But term limits on its own will not do enough to combat the corruption. Term limits is just a, is one piece of the puzzle, and I'm a supporter of term limits. I've signed a term limits pledge. But on top of that, you need lobbying reform. You need to be able to cut off this revolving door of elected official to lobbyists, because what you see is a, a huge conflict of interest. You see all these insider games being played, and there's really this cash pipeline that goes on. Perfect example here in Ohio, in the 15th district, we had Steve Stivers, who retired early from Congress to become the head of the Ohio Chamber of Commerce, a very lucrative gig, and you don't get those type of jobs without earning them in Congress. And you earn them in Congress by undermining the interests of people in favor of these special interests. So there needs to be, at the very least, a long probationary period of elected officials becoming lobbyists, but I believe a permanent ban on elected officials becoming lobbyists. And last, but certainly not least, is you need to slash the massive bureaucracy that we are living under. The administrative state, they write more than 90% of our laws, put in place more than 90% of our regulations. They control a lot more than Congress or even the executive branch does today. And you see, we can put term limits on people like Nancy Pelosi or Marcy Kaptur or any of these Republicans that have been in there way too long. But if you allow the Dr. Fauci's of the world to stay in place, to stay in power for generations or decades, you are going to see them just simply take over the process like they really have today. So you need a certain term limit process for these bureaucrats, but ultimately you need to begin to slash into these bureaucratic agencies by doing things that might be perceived as radical, but are, are necessary, like abolishing the Federal Department of Education, abolishing the ATF, massively slashing the EPA, the CDC, these organizations that really just soak up taxpayer funding and pad the pockets of administrators and, and bureaucratic officials. If you do all three of these things, you're going to see a marked change in the way that D.C. operates 
and you're going to see that power center shift back to our states and to our communities. But ultimately, every single issue, we're, we're in some deep stuff right now. We need some holistic approaches, and we need what people will call radical solutions to these things, but it's really just getting the power center out of D.C., and these are the steps able to do that mm-hmm. that will curb that corruption. Well, very good. We've been talking to Jonah Schultz. He's the Republican uh, candidate, one of the number of candidates running for the 7th District, Congressional District, uh, this uh, May in the Republican primary. So, Jonah, thank you so much for uh, talking to us tonight, and we hope to talk to you again soon, and good luck in your campaign. Well, thanks so much for having me on. And anyone who can, go to SchultzForCongress.com. You can learn more about my policy and background there. As well we should. Jonah, thank you so much, and good luck. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great, healthy, and safe week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea with nothing to 